Good morning. I have my microphone prepared and I ripped it off on a few minutes ago. If y'all want to, you can go ahead and get training to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to finish up our, uh, our series in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through. We're going to, we're going to finish that up in the next, the next several minutes that we're together this morning. Matthew chapter 7, we'll, we'll begin there in just a moment. It's good to be here this morning. Um, it's good to be able to worship with, with all of you. Um, I think we have some that are out, but we also still have a very full building. Um, so that's, that's a, a very good thing. Um, it's, it's good to be able to gather with saints to worship the, the God who has saved us. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7. This morning we will begin reading in, in verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. This is the, uh, verse 13 kind of begins the, it begins the, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, up to this point, for the most part, there have been, uh, Jesus, he's had various teachings, um, a lot of times very uh, specific in application, but broad in principle, I guess you could say. Um, but now, beginning in verse 13, he's going to shift more from uh, teaching, you know, attitudes that we should have and things that we should do for each other and for others. Um, he's going to he, he's going to, to to conclude the sermon with several different illustrations here uh, from verses 13 through 29, really with a, a call to action for his listeners. So let, let's begin, enough of me speaking, let's, let's listen to the words of our king, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. So this, this first section here, in verses 13 through 14, uh, is a, a very, pr probably a relatively familiar passage, at least the, the phrasing is, you know, the narrow gate, the straight and narrow, we'll have to say, although I don't think it actually says straight, 
here. Um, the, the, the small gate, the narrow way. Um, verses 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide, the way is broad, that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So, as he as Christ begins his conclusion, as he as he begins to wrap up this this um, momentous sermon, uh, he he he's very upfront with his audience. Uh, he he's very upfront with them, uh, letting them know that a kingdom a kingdom centered life, which is what he's been talking about for the last two and a half chapters, a kingdom centered life is not something that you're just going to stumble into. You're not just going to accidentally wander into a kingdom-centered life. Um, the, 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 the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life. A kingdom-centered life, which is what he's talking about here with, the, with this narrow way, a kingdom-centered life is something that's chosen. You, you choose a kingdom-centered life. It's not something that you just accidentally happen to, happen to live. You don't, no one accidentally lives a kingdom-centered life. And unfortunately, this kingdom-centered life is not something that most people are going to choose. And this is not to say that it's difficult to find. It's not difficult to find at all. If you look back just a few verses, we talked about this last time we looked at Matthew 7. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. It's not hard to find it. God says, if you just if you just search for me, if you just seek me, you, I will be found. So the 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 reason that that many will will not walk on this narrow path is not because it's a difficult path to find, but it's more because it's a difficult path to walk. It, it, it's it's because it is. Not something that they that you can just do on a whim or, 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 or just stumble into, like we've said. It's something that, that has to be chosen. If you choose the kingdom, if you choose the, the small gate, the narrow way, then again, look back just a few verses, you'll find it. But it's a choice that has to be made. And that, that's, that's what Christ is, is really hitting his audience with here is, you know, this is... This, this is difficult. This is, this is something that you must choose. You must commit to this way. The, the, gates, of, the gates of God's kingdom, they're, they're flung open. They're flung wide open to any who seek that kingdom. It's not, again, it's not difficult to find or to enter if you are seeking it. But it will only be found by a few, because only a few will, will make the hard decision to seek it. <clears throat> and I feel like it's also important to understand here, verses 13 through 14, that Christ is, when Christ says, you know, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad, there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, there are few who find it. I don't believe that Christ is talking here about a one-time event. That, okay, well, I, I saw it, I found it, so that's that. That's not what Christ is talking about here. Walking the narrow way is a lifestyle. And you just think about the, the, the illustration that he used, walking down a path. That's not something that happens in an instant. It is a journey. So when, when we're talking about walking the narrow way, this is the lifestyle that Christ is preaching. And it's the type of lifestyle that he spent the last two and a half chapters describing. 
he, he, he is just illustrated for us very clearly in the chapters 5, 6, and the first chapter 7 what it looks like to, to walk the narrow path, to live this lifestyle. It's a life where you give up all of the control. All of it. Not 99% of it. You give up all of the control in your life and submit your will to that of your king. That is what the narrow way looks like. One can see why this might be a, a narrow path that only few will choose. It is a path of, of selflessness, a, a path of complete subjugation to, to a, higher, a higher, power, higher power. And so the question for us as the reader is, am I choosing the narrow path? Am I completely subjugating my will to that of my king? Because as we have studied over the last several chapters, your will should be aligned, to, or to, to align your will with the king's will. It means that you align your will with his in every relationship that you have, in every conversation that you have, in every decision that you make. That's not me being hyperbolic. That is, that is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, I dare you to try and read this, this, this sermon and come away thinking that there's some part of your life that you don't have to submit to God's will. That there's some vice you can engage in, there's some grudge you can hold, there, there's some lie that you can live and not have to, to subjugate that to, to the king and get rid of that. And let, allow him to cut that off of you. The, the, this choosing the narrow way is a 100% commitment to the king for as long as he gives you breath. And Jesus is very upfront with with those who are listening or those now who are reading and starting. He's very upfront with us about what that looks like. There's a narrow gate. There's a, there's a small gate in a narrow way. But that way leads to life. That way leads to life. Well, looking now in, in, in verse 15, he, he has a warning for, 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 the list, for, for the listeners. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, but he tells us you will know them by their fruits. Here he, he, he gives a warning to his listeners, Jesus does. He gives a warning to look out for people who maybe on the surface appear to be kingdom-centered. Excuse me, you know, they say the right things. But the, the bad fruit that they bear does not match their good works. Jesus says that these people are ravenous wolves. And you think about that, that image, a ravenous wolf. These people are, are willing to destroy others to get whatever it is that they want. Whatever it is that, that satiates their appetite, they're willing to destroy other people to get that. This is, what, this is the, the illustration Jesus uses to warn of these, these false prophets, these false teachers. And within, within the context of the sermon, um, it seems to me that the immediate application when he was preaching this would be to people like the, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day. Um, and indeed, most of this sermon, pretty much all of this sermon flies in the face of the, the lifestyle of the Pharisees. Um, so here, um, so here Jesus again seems to be warning against the Pharisees, warning against the religious leaders, people who 
They may look good. They may say good things. They may, they may quote to you the law of Moses, God's law. But then you look at the fruits that they're bearing in their life, and they, they are, Jesus says they are false teachers. They are false prophets. They are hypocrites. And that, that is readily evident when you, when you look past the thing, only the things that they say, and you look at how they actually live their lives and the fruit that comes from their teaching. The teaching of the Pharisees did not lead to life. The teaching of the Pharisees did not lead to the narrow way. There was the narrow gate. And Jesus' warning of the Pharisees and of, 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 other, of other false teachers who might follow in their footsteps. People who, who are only looking to fulfill their own interests and are willing to destroy any and everyone else to achieve those interests. But thankfully, Christ, Christ gives us a, a way to identify those people so that we, so we might not be taken in, taken in by them, or at least taken in by them for very long. He says you will know them by their fruits. And when you think about that, you know, it, it's... Uh, that's not too difficult of a task. It may take a little bit of time to, to, to get to know someone and, and really start to see what they're actually about beyond what they say. But it's, most of us are not that good at actors. Most people are not that good at actors that, that they, can hide, they can hide their fruit from you very well. Um, and, and it's also important to note that this is not what Christ is describing here of, of knowing someone by their fruits. This is not a witch hunt. This is not where you know, we, can, we have to sit and try and discern what somebody's motives are and try and figure out what's going on in their mind. I mean, we can't do that. Christ says, you know, no, just... Just look for the fruits. Just look for the fruits of their teaching, the fruits of, of their life, and you'll be able to tell if this is a good tree or if this is a bad tree. <clears throat> when, when, a, when a wolf that has infiltrated a flock of sheep starts to act like a wolf, it's very easy to tell, okay, that's not a sheep. That, 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 that's a wolf. That, that, that is a ravenous wolf that is, that is bent on destruction. Very, it's very. It, it should be very easy to tell false teachers when you look for their fruits. And just a, a, a quick uh, side point here. Just a quick, maybe just a freebie, I guess you could say. Um, this is not not. This, this is more application from from these several verses here, fifteen through twenty, as opposed to. I think the main point that Jesus is getting at. Um, but sometimes you may hear someone, and, and someone may have told you this in your life, but you'll, you may hear someone use the excuse that, you know, there are hypocrites in the church. So that's why, I don't, that's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't want to be a part of that group, because there are hypocrites in the church. And that is, I mean, that's true. I, I, will not argue, I will not argue that at all. I'm sure I, I probably have been one at some point. And while that is true, it's also very unfortunate. Like, even though it's true, that doesn't mean it's good or it's, or it's okay, something we should be okay with. But it is true. Um, so that someone saying that, you know, they're hypocrites in the church, that's, I, I would not argue that at all. However, what I would argue is that Jesus never promised that there would not be hypocrites in the church. That there would not be hypocrites hiding among those who are truly seeking him. In fact, he's says the exact opposite here in Matthew chapter 7. He, he speaks exactly of this type of person, of someone who's a hypocrite, someone who is saying something but then doing something else. 
he, he, he speaks exactly of that type of person and warns of how we should watch out for them and be aware of them. The response to a hypocrite is not to run from the church that has been bought, bought with the blood of Christ. Instead, the response should be to recognize them by their fruits and not follow after them. And, and understand that they will be judged for their fruits on the last day. Um, and and I, 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 I make this point not to, not, not to at all to belittle people who have, who have dealt with hypocrites in the church and who have been turned off by that. I'm not, not belittling their, their viewpoint, but I, I, I make the point so that if you if you have someone like that in your life, or if you or if you have or if in the future you have someone like that in your life, just remember this passage. Maybe take them to this passage and lovingly, gently help them understand that um, well, yes, there are hypocrites in the church, and that is wrong and that is bad. It is not unfortunately unexpected. However, Christ has provided us. With, with the means of, of identifying people like that and, and of, uh, how we should respond to it. So again, that uh, just maybe, maybe uh, something I was thinking about as, as I was putting the lesson together, maybe you will find some practical application for that in your life. Um, but let's, let's get back to, to the text here and continue on now in verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, not only will there be false teachers who, who hide amongst the flock like we just read about in the previous six verses, but there will also be false doers as well, as we read here in verses 21 through 23. These seem to be people who do a lot of the right things, but whose heart is not right. You know, the, these people claim these people are surprised on Judgment Day that, that they are not going to enter. These are not people who are just all about themselves necessarily and are, um, you know, just ravenous wolves, as, as Christ described just a few verses prior. These are people who, who are surprised when they're not told that they can enter. And they say, you know, Lord, did we not do all of these great things? Did we not work these miracles in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Um, cast out demons. <clears throat> so these are people who, on the surface, seem to be doing good things, doing the right things. <clears throat> um, and, and I would... I, 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 I don't read this passage as I don't think I don't think that these people Jesus describes are lying. I don't think that they actually didn't perform these signs or do these things. And you think uh, that there are certainly people in Scripture who were able to do wonderful, miraculous things, but whose hearts were not right. And you think about Balaam in the Book of Numbers; he was able to prophesy, but his heart certainly wasn't right. You think about maybe some of the, some of our brethren at the church in Corinth when Paul was writing to them in First Corinthians; they had. I had a lot of issues going on, but I also had some spiritual gifts going on too. So just, just I, I, I would, I would argue that that what Christ is talking about here when he says, you know, these people are crying, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? I think they actually did these things. However, there is something about them that that was not kingdom worthy. 
I don't know if that's the right phrase to use. But there is something about their lives that, that made where they would not enter into the kingdom. It, it seems as if despite the good things that these people did, despite the fact that they recognized Christ as Lord, it seems that they never gave their heart wholly to Him. And, and, and in fact, the end result... Uh, the, the end result of this, the end result of not giving themselves wholly to the Lord, is that any of the good things that they may have done, you know, quote unquote, good things that they did, they're counted as lawlessness. Jesus says in verse 23, "You who practice lawlessness." We see in verse 21 that, that someone someone may make plenty of, of religious pretense, and they may talk about God, and they may do good things, but they can still not be doing the will of the Father. If they say, Lord, Lord, again, they, they acknowledge Christ as Lord. But that doesn't mean they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father in heaven will enter. The, the Father's will is not that you do good things. The Father's will is that you be like the Father. Remember chapter 5 and verse 48. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we talked about how the... the, the How, how difficult of a calling that is. And, and impossible, but that doesn't mean that we don't try. It doesn't mean that we, that we don't continue to seek to draw closer to God and to learn more about Him and to be more like Him every day of our life. The Father's will is that you be like the Father. And this is, this is an all-encompassing charge. One, one cannot do the will of the Father, as we see we must in verse 21. One cannot do the will of the Father while only rendering superficial service to him. Pra practically, Jesus seems to be teaching here in these three verses that it, it, it is possible for, for one to look the part of a kingdom citizen, at least upon first glance, but actually be practicing lawlessness. That it is possible for someone to, to not have the heart of a kingdom citizen, but still do a lot of religious things. And, and actually fool themselves into thinking that these religious things merit an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You know, these people, you might say, can be raised in the church. These people can attend services their entire life. They can go to church every time the doors are open. They can sit, they can sing in the pews, they can listen to the lessons, they can partake of the Lord's Supper, they can answer questions in Bible class. But if you are not growing in the kingdom, if you are not letting God change change all of you, if you're not letting him change you and cut away the sin, especially when it hurts, if you're not seeking him with all of your heart, then none of these things matter. It doesn't matter how many generations back you go, your family being in the church. It doesn't matter how many decades you've spent attending church. It doesn't matter how many Bible classes you've gone to. It doesn't, none of that matters if your heart is not wholly given to the Lord. If you are not willing to continue to change, continue to put away sin until the day that you die. We never get to retirement age within the church. We never do. When, when, when we die or when the war comes, that is when we can enjoy the rest that is promised us. But until that day, while we are still living in this sinful world, while we are still trapped in this body of sin, we, we, are, to, we are to continue to allow God to change us and mold us and shape us into the people that we were originally created to be. That is not something that, that, that you can give less, less than 
It's not something where you can keep some things back. You know, those really, those dark parts of your heart that you don't like to talk to people about that you maybe have never talked to somebody about. You have to let God change that. To, to, to do the will of the Father, as, as we read in verse 21, requires it. It requires you to, to submit, to fully submit to the King. If you're not letting Jesus change your life to where your life looks like the life described in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 7, then nothing else matters. <coughs> you know, maybe maybe to, to put it simply, it is possible for someone to be quote, an upstanding church member, if you will, and not be an upstanding citizen in God's kingdom. And, and this is this is not a warning to make sure that man, I gotta make sure that I'm doing enough to gain entrance to the kingdom. That's not what this is at all. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of that. The one who does the Father's will is the one who will enter the kingdom. Not the one who checks all the boxes. The one who does the Father's will is the one who will enter the kingdom. And the Father's will is that you align your will with his will. You give him your whole heart, and everything else will fall into place after that. If you are seeking God, go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who, who recognize their own spiritual depravity, who recognize that God and God alone can fix it, those are the people who will have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. People who recognize that I am not the source of righteousness. I am not the source of of goodness, of right order in my life. God and God alone is, and I'm hungry for that. I'm thirsting for that and seeking that. They shall be satisfied. <clears throat> the, 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 that is what it looks like to be a king of the citizen. That is what it looks like to seek God's will. To, to pursue the will of the Father. When you give him your heart like that, everything else will fall into place. But when, when we have a heart that is hungry and thirsting for righteousness, and we're poor in spirit, then we will, we will treat others the way that we should treat others. We will serve our God the way that he deserves, because we recognize who he is and what he's done for us, and just how helpless we were when he did that for us, when he saved us. I think we get it backward when we try to figure out what things we need to do in order to do the Father's will. Instead, I think we should seek to understand the Father's will, understand the Father's will for us, and let that understanding guide us through every decision and every interaction that we have in our life. Jesus ends, ends his sermon in verses 24 through 27 with, with a the startling story. We'll read it, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So he, he, begins, he begins his final statements here 
uh, by saying, therefore, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, dot, dot, dot. So he, he's connecting this final teaching, this final illustration. Uh, he's connecting it, I think, with what he was just saying in the verses prior, as well as with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The sermon as a whole, as we've talked about, has been a warning against the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. It has been a warning against that self-righteousness, and it has been a call to live a life in the kingdom based on following the Father's will and being righteous, being rightly ordered according to God's definition. That's what, that's what this whole sermon has been about. And Jesus has just summed that up by contrasting the person who does the will of the Father and who will enter the kingdom of heaven with the one who trusts in all of the religious things that he's done and who will be told to depart. And here in verse 24, he makes one final and ultimate contrast between, between those two people. There, there is the wise man, the one who, who, who builds this, this proverbial house upon a rock. Um, and, and, and who does the will of the Father. And, there, and then there is the foolish man, the person who, who, who may cry out, Lord, Lord, and who does the religious things without actually subjugating themselves to the Father's will. And the first man, the wise man, is said to have built his house on the rock. He is trusting in the Father. He has aligned his will with the will of the Father. He, he is not relying on his own righteousness. He's not relying on his good deeds before men and what other people think about him. He's not relying on any of that, but instead he is trusting that God knows those who are his, as we have recently studied in 2 Timothy 2. And because his foundation is God, because his foundation is God's righteousness, because his foundation is God's will in his life, then he will not fall when the storm comes. He will not fall. But the second man, the foolish man, is said to have built his house on the sand. His foundation is not God's righteousness. His foundation is his own righteousness. He is trusting in himself He's trusting in his works. He's trusting in his checklist. But, but true righteousness, true God-centered righteousness, as Christ has been teaching about during this whole sermon, it is not attained through meticulous law-keeping. That, 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 is, that is, dare I say, the point of this entire sermon. I, I think if you... I, I may disagree with myself later today when I think about this, but I think when you... If you were to sum up the entire Sermon on the Mount, perhaps in one sentence, it's that God's righteousness does not come through meticulous law. True righteousness, true right order, does not come through one's own definition of what is righteous. But that seems to be what the, what the foolish man who is rejecting these teachings, who is rejecting these words of Christ, who is not acting on them, that seems to be what, what he's doing. He's pursuing righteousness, he's pursuing security through, through his own means, not through the teachings of our Lord. So when this storm comes, this man will fall. This man will fall, his house will collapse, and great was its fall. So what, what, is, what is this storm? What is this storm that, that Jesus warns of here at the end of the sermon? Now, I've, I've, I at least have previously believed that 
you know, maybe it's hard times in life and stuff like that. You know, when hard times come, Jesus is your rock. And that, that's certainly true. That's taught in Scripture. We see that all through the Psalms. But that's, I would argue, that is, that is not what's being taught in Matthew 7. That's not the storm that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. Instead, the storm that Jesus is warning of is the storm of God's judgment. It's the storm of God's wrath. And I say that for two reasons. One, it seems to fit the context of the whole sermon a lot better. And we're at the very end of this monumental sermon where Christ has called for life-changing righteousness from his hearers. And this story of these two houses, these two builders, these two foundations, this story is directly connected um, with the previous section, with, which ended with a warning of eternal judgment for those who refuse God's life-changing righteousness. So that's one. That's one reason I argue that this is this storm is, is the, the judgment of God. But the second second reason, and perhaps the, the more important reason, is that Jesus seems to be strongly echoing a, a passage in the Old Testament. If you want to, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 13. We've stayed in, the, we've stayed in Matthew for pretty much all of these, these lessons that we've gone through. Um, we're going to go to Ezekiel 13. Um, I think that's okay, because I think Jesus was referencing Ezekiel 13 in Matthew chapter 7. Um, Ezekiel chapter 13, uh, in, in verse 9, Jesus seems to be echoing this passage in Ezekiel, a, a passage that warns of God's judgment on lying, hypocritical leaders. So Ezekiel chapter 13, beginning in verse 9, um, this, is, this is God speaking. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and other lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. It is definitely because they misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall. And a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, where, where is the plaster with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst, and you will know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace declares the Lord God. <clears throat> so here in Ezekiel, there, there are apparently leaders who, like the Pharisees, are leading God's people astray. They're prophesying peace when there is no peace, saying, don't, don't worry, don't change anything, things are good. But they're leading God's people astray, and these leaders in Ezekiel's times will be consumed in the storm of God's wrath, and all that they have built will come all the will crumble. No matter how, how pretty they make it look with all the whitewash, it's going to fall flat on its face and be destroyed. What, what, a, what a fitting passage for Jesus to reference. As he, uh, a passage that is warning of, of the doom that awaits those who, who lead God's people astray. 
what a fitting passage for him to reference when, when he is warning of the doom that awaits those who hold to pharisaical self-righteousness. The doom that awaits those who build their houses on man-made righteousness, on man-made religion, and not on God's will. Those people are doomed to be destroyed in the storm of God's judgment. It's a very abrupt ending to, 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 the, to the sermon. The rain fell, verse 27, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And that's it. That, 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 that is the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I feel in, in, in the abruptness of this ending, it is a challenge to the listener. What, what house, or what foundation, will you build your house on? Will you seek God, the, the will of the Father? Will you seek the righteousness of God? Or, or will you seek something else? Will you seek your own self-righteousness? Will, will, you, seek, uh, will you seek comfort in, in your own version, your own watered-down version of God's will? Um, you can do that. You can have probably some level of superficial peace here, here in this life. Maybe. But when, the, but when God's judgment comes, that peace will be gone in an instant, never to be found again. Jesus leaves, it leaves us as his hearers to think about that. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching with authority because he is the authority. He, he, was, he was there before the law that the Pharisees uh, held to. In fact, he gave that law. Jesus is the authority, so he can tell them, he can explain to them more clearly what the law was always meant to do, but what it could never do because of our fallen state. He, he could explain to them what it looked like to be a citizen in God's kingdom because he is its king. Christ is the authority. He was the authority then, he is the authority now. So as we, as we finish our study through the Sermon on the Mount, remember this, that God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. It is a kingdom for those who would be righteous, those who will be rightly ordered. That's what righteousness is. It is being rightly ordered according to God's definition. The kingdom is a kingdom for those who would be righteous in every aspect of their lives. The kingdom is not a kingdom of, of you know, law-keeping of checklists where, you know, if I do X, Y, and Z with the right attitude, then I'm good. That's not what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is about being like the king. Again, Matthew 5, verse 48, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The kingdom is about having the humility to let yourself be shaped and molded to the point that your character is reflective of the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And this character will be practically evident in the fruit that you bear, as you interact with others in the ways that Christ describes throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 5 after the Beatitudes, it will be evident that you are seeking the kingdom like Christ describes in Matthew chapter 6. But you're not holding on to things of this world. You're not finding your security in things of this world. And you're not tying your emotions up in the cares and the concerns of this world. You're trusting that God is going to provide for his citizens what they need to accomplish his righteousness. 
kingdom citizens, we, we, we read in Matthew chapter 7, are not self-righteous people who, te who tear others down to build themselves up. Instead, they are self-reflective people who put others first in all things and treat them the way that they would like to be treated. The Sermon on the Mount is, is a portrait of what it looks like to be a citizen in God's kingdom. It is what it looks like to be a, a citizen in right standing in God's kingdom of righteousness. Your life will be transformed into one that glorifies the king and reflects his life. And because you're trusting in the king, because you're building your house upon his righteousness, then you will stand in the coming judgment. You will be found faithful. And you, you will hear the words, enter my faithful servant. I hope that this study this morning and over, honestly, this entire year, I think we've been going through this, I, I hope that it's been beneficial. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is something that I think we should... We should, we should be studying it, we should have it in mind, we should, be, we should be reading it and applying it every day of our lives until we die. I hope this has been, I hope this has been encouraging, I hope it's been challenging. It's challenging to study it, it's challenging to read it, uh, to teach it. Um, because call to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is a challenging call. But it's a call that, that, that we must answer if we, want, if, if we want to stand in the last day. If you need to submit to the Father's will this morning, uh, whether that be through, through baptism, because you, you've never submitted to his will, then, then we would love to help you with that, to lower you into the waters of baptism, so that you might be, have your sins washed away with the blood of our King, and that you may begin walking in God's kingdom of righteousness, that you may begin walking down that narrow way and make that choice for the first time. So if you need to be baptized this morning, if you need anything else from the congregation, prayers, uh, encouragement, anything like that, I ask that you would please let us know uh, as, as we stand and as we sing this song together. We'll sing.